May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. March 1965, the Soviet Union took a huge step forward in its space exploration program. In fact, they completed a feat that would take the Americans four years to outdo by landing on the moon. The Voshkod 2 space mission sent two cosmonauts into outer space, and they were to, um, and they actually accomplished this, the first ever uh, spacewalk, where a, um, a human being would leave a spaceship and be in outer space tethered to that, uh, that spacecraft. Uh, the, um, the cosmonaut's name was Alexei Leonov, and uh, again, he was the first person ever to, to walk outside of a, a spacecraft in outer space. Soviet television carried this event live all across the former Eastern Bloc Federation, you know, hailing the Soviet uh, intelligence and superiority in, in the space uh, uh, race and, and all those sorts of things. Everything was grand until it wasn't when things started to go drastically wrong. About 12 minutes into the spacewalk, uh, Leonov realized that um, that he could not bend to get back into the spacecraft. The, uh, the engineers who had designed the spacesuit did not account for the vacuum in outer space, and so it was like being in a concrete uh, spacesuit. It wouldn't bend at all. His, um, his fellow cosmonaut got out of his seat back to the to the, the portal where uh, he was to come in and you know, tried desperately to pull him through, but he couldn't pull him through. Again, it was just unbendable, and, and so it, it, it was really becoming a quite tense moment. In fact, so hysteric, almost, the, the, um, the cosmonaut Leonov outside, that he began to sweat profusely inside of his suit where there was nowhere for it to escape. The, the, the fluid filled up above his knees, and so he was in completely encased in fluid up to his knees and, you know, very, uh, very quite nervous as to what was about to happen. As a last resort, there's a valve in his suit that he released, but releasing it causes such decompression that it's called the bends. It's what divers, when they come up from the bottom of the, of the ocean too fast, you know, will come under massive internal pain. He risked this release the valve a little bit, it allowed the suit to bend, his, his friend pulls him through, he gets inside the spacecraft just before it begins its launch into, um, re-entry into the orbit, they seal the hatch, they're safe inside. But another flaw in the design was that they had not counted for two people being in the back of the spacecraft, it only had room for one. So they couldn't get back to their seats, these two cosmonauts in the back of the spaceship now frantically trying to get into their seats before they enter, uh, re-enter into the Earth's atmosphere. They weren't able to get in their seats before it re-entered into Earth's atmosphere. It caused the center of gravity in the craft to be off enough that the trajectory of their re-entry was completely off. They got back in their seats, buckled back in. Eventually, the parachute came out. It landed hundreds of miles away from where they were supposed to be. They landed in Siberia. As they hit, the door, you know, jettisoned the, the craft because it hit such force, so it was wide open. Now they're hundreds of miles away from where they're supposed to be, in Siberia, where um, there are things like bears and wolves and all sorts of uh, wildlife, not to mention cold and snow. 
Somehow, though, they managed to make it through the night. The next day, a helicopter spotted the big red parachute against the white snow, and uh, they recovered both the cosmonauts and the the spacecraft. Um, They were quite happy just to have made it through alive. And I thought about how sometimes even the very best laid plans come completely apart. You have engineers and physicists, for crying out loud, people who are actually rocket scientists. I mean, they're, yeah, they're not the, you know, the proverbial ones, they're the actual ones, you know. And even they sometimes mess it up. And then I thought about how every walk of life, the things like this, you know, where planning is necessary, where it's essential, crucial, and yet sometimes things still kind of come apart. Other types of explorations, um, you know, people who have uh, who climbed Mount Everest or gone to the Amazon or, or the South Pole. Perhaps you remember the, 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 um, the expedition of Sir Robert Falcon Scott, who a British um, explorer tried to beat, uh, who was it, the Dutch, I think, to the, to the South Pole. He didn't actually beat them there. Um, he got there second, and then he never made it home. They, they discovered his body in a sleeping bag eight months later, frozen. You can go to Sydney, Australia and find a box of his tea unopened. suppose it would have been better if he had opened it, you know, maybe, maybe another day. Who knows? But, you know, that mission completely came apart. Or how about in business? You know, businesses who plan and, and strategize and have a mission, they, you know, they have an idea of where they want to go. AT&T. You know that AT&T stands for American Telephone and Telegraph? <laughs> My kids have no idea what a telegraph is. And their kids will have no idea what a telephone is, right? And yet AT&T has managed to survive. You know, saw what was happening and was able to adjust. On the other hand, I heard this week that a company called Radio Shack filed for bankruptcy. Seems that neither radios nor shacks are in vogue these days. And so there they go. What about sports? Best laid plans. How many times have you heard this week, why did the Seahawks throw a football on the one-yard line when they could have just run the ball in? Some of you are like, Seahawk football? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Super Bowl, last week. Uh, I, uh, a friend of mine, Joe Adams, some of you know, sent me a text yesterday that said, um, uh, school children all over the country will be wearing Seahawks jerseys on test day, knowing that sometimes you pass when you shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> What about in the military? You know, have you ever heard of, of these phrases, the fog of war, mission creep? Uh, when you go in, you have a strategy, a plan, and things just kind of fall apart. Sometimes the best laid plans can come unraveled. Sometimes the very best plans of the very best intentions just simply come apart. You would think that Jesus being Jesus would never face this sort of uh, problem. This, this sort of mission creep or, or a digression of mission would never happen to him. He would never kind of be in the fog of mission. And yet in Mark's gospel we see today where just that sort of thing, well, at least could have happened. It was on the verge of happening. And, and you see it in this little the passage that, uh, that Brian read just a moment ago, four little vignettes. The first one begins is Jesus goes to Simon Peter's home. Uh, Simon Peter and, and Andrew, there's a, they go into the home, and the, Simon Peter's mother-in-law is sick. She's in bed with a fever. 
and you say, oh, that's too bad, you know, give her some antibiotics and she'll be better. But they don't have antibiotics in the first century. If she has a fever, is sick in bed, this could be deadly. In fact, this is the greatest fear that people had of getting a fever because it, it often did lead to death. Uh, some years ago, um, I was in, in Mozambique, Africa. Uh, we were at a work site building this church and um, this fellow who was a Mozambican, I, I got to know, and, and he would show up every day at the work site, big smile, great, delightful person. Um, one day shows up at the work site, and he is just, he, he's devastated. And I said to him, you know, what's the matter? He said, my four-year-old son has malaria, and he's burning up with a fever. And, and he was very distraught, you know, and, and we prayed for him, and I asked him, you know, is there a way we can get him to some medical attention, and, and he said that they were able, his wife was able to get him into the clinic, and, and so he was hoping that he would be treated. And a couple of days later, he, he come back and reported that his son, in fact, did, was doing well, and, and the fever had, had broken, and, and he was hopeful for full recovery. But that didn't happen a lot. In the ancient world, there was no clinic. You know, there was no way out of this thing. A fever could lead to death, and so it was quite a terrifying thing. So notice what Jesus does when he goes into the house and, and the mother-in-law is sick with a fever. The first thing he does is he takes notice. In verse 30, Simon, now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him, that is Jesus, about her. And he came to her. He goes to her. You think, well, of course he does. That's what you do, right? I mean, you go to someone who has a fever. No, you don't. You run away from someone with a fever if you live in the first century. And he touches her. Jesus reaches out and touches her. And here you're saying to yourself, see, see, he's sweet. He's a, he's a nice boy. He was raised well by his mother, right? He reaches out. No. Not only is this, you know, a terrifying thing that you may actually catch what the person has, it's scandalous. No Jewish male would touch a, an unrelated female anywhere in the sight of other people. He just simply would not do that. It, it, was, it was scandalous. It was, it was unthought of, unheard of. More than that, she's ill, so now Jesus would become ceremonially unclean. Something that, that Jews would avoid. There's both the, the threat of disease and, and this sort of ostracization from um, community. And he lifts her up. And the fever leaves her. Literally, what Mark says, he dismisses the fever. He tells it to go. And then, Mark says, she, she got up and began to serve them. And, and my wife has said for years, oh, well, of course she did. You know, uh, here's the healing story because somebody needed a cheese sandwich, right? No, no, no. She becomes the prototypical disciple. She gets up and does what Jesus says his disciples ought to do. She serves. Jesus himself will say it. Who wants to be the greatest in the kingdom? Be the one who serves. He says it himself. I did not come to be served, but to serve. This, uh, this mother-in-law of Peter gets up and she becomes the prototype for what a disciple ought to be. The second vignette. Can you imagine what would happen in, in a case like this? You go in and you, you, he's already come from the synagogue where he healed somebody. Now he goes into a home and he heals somebody from disease. First one from demon possession and now from disease. What's it going to do? I mean, it's going to bring out the hordes, right? The, the people are going to come from all over. It's actually happened. Verse 32, that evening at sundown. Now, remember, this is on the Sabbath day. Sabbath runs from Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown. This is Saturday day at sundown. So the very first moment people can get out of their homes, they're not allowed to travel, but just a, a short distance. So everybody's at the door waiting. And at sundown, they come out. 
so, excuse me, um, where am I? There. They brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered at the door. I don't know if you could imagine this. Maybe it's a small city. You know, Capernaum is a small town, okay? Maybe it's, you know, half the size. Well, maybe it's a third of the size of, let's say, Hudson with its 22,000 residents. That's still a pretty populated city. Let's say it's even, you know, smaller than that, you know, a half of a half half or something like that. Could you imagine 3,000 people standing outside of this door right here and what that would look like? The people all over in the sick, in the lane, and, 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 and people who were, you know, spazzing out with sort of demon possession, and they're all outside of the door. I, I imagine that Jesus is standing at the door, don't you? And, and, and healing people. And as he heals one, and they remove that person out of the way, another comes, and another, and another. And that sort of leads us to the third little vignette, which is, somebody finally says, enough! <laughs> we're closing up shop! It's, it's 2 a.m., whatever it is. We, he needs some sleep. I think the mother-in-law probably says this, you know. She says, enough is enough. You know, we're all out of iced tea. There's nothing left. Go. Come back tomorrow. I'm sure the last words were, come back tomorrow. Because what happens next? Uh, Rising early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed. He got up before the crowd could show up. Works late into the night, goes to bed, rises while it's still dark. And what does he do? He departed and he went out to a deserted place and there he prayed. Oh, you say, of course, you know. He's got to recharge. I mean, this is important. You can't just keep giving and giving and giving and never, you know, recharge. He's got to go out and pray. He's he's got to pray and come back, get back to that doorway, you know. Get back in that front door because there's going to be another crowd there today. And Simon Peter and those with him searched for him and they found him. And what did they say? Everyone's looking for you. They're back at the door, you know. You've got to get back in your station. And Jesus says to them, okay, let's go. No, that's not what he says. You heard it, didn't he? He says, let's go to the next town. We told people to come back tomorrow, you know, and they're out in front of the door. They're waiting and come back tomorrow. Nothing. Uh, We got we we need to move on. You can't just leave them there. You can't just walk off and leave the people standing in the doorway. And he said to him, he said to them, rather, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also. Look at this. For that is why I came. Let's go to the next towns, for that is why I came. I came to proclaim the message. I came to proclaim the good news that God is king. The captives are being released. Recovery of sight to the blind. This is the the Lord is at work in this world right now. He's coming to be king. It's time. And sometimes that message is preached in in miracles of healing. Sometimes it's, it's preached in miracles of, of being released from, from deep. Sometimes it's proclaimed just simply by the word. The Lord is here. The Lord is king. The kingdom of God is at hand. And listen, the destination is Jerusalem, not Capernaum. We don't stay here. We're going throughout Galilee, and we're on our way to Jerusalem. And what's in Jerusalem? The cross. We're on our way to Jerusalem where I will die and be raised again. 
Jesus does not allow, don't miss this, he does not allow the present need to distract him from the mission. He does not allow the present need to distract him from the centrality of the mission. And mission creep is something that the church has fought against ever since. Unlike Jesus, we often allow ourselves to be distracted by present needs. We often allow ourselves to be distracted by all sorts of things and miss the mission. We get bogged down in controversies and discussions and all sorts of nonsense. And we forget the mission. Can I give you just a few places where we get kind of bogged down? Just a few. You know, these are for fun, right? None of them apply here. Elsewhere, maybe not here. Aesthetics. Abby and I were having this discussion the other day about beauty. It, it came from a discussion that Brian and I had had earlier in the day at lunchtime about, about beauty and what is objectively beautiful and, and what is good. You know, is there any objective standard for what is beautiful, what is ideal? You know, is beauty really in the eye of the beholder? Or is there some sort of objective beauty that makes some things more beautiful than others? Now, I tend to think that I have a very fine eye for, uh, for all things beautiful, or, you know, whether it's art or poetry or music, um, bourbon. I have, I, I, you know, I know what is good, you know, and, and I have a way of, of kind of delineating those sorts of things, of knowing, and, um, and I'm tolerant to a degree, you know. I, I feel like if you want to be wrong, it's okay. I don't, I don't judge you for that. You can be wrong all you like. Become a bit of a snob about the things that I think are better than other things. You, you catch the tongue in cheek here, right? Well, not really. <laughs> but we have this sort of degree of which we think something is more beautiful or something more preferable than others, and, and we sort of get off mission because we're so consumed with what we assume is the better thing. You know, I mean, I think that that comes in so many ways in so many places that we can't, it, it, I mean, I could get distracted from the mission of preaching this sermon simply by talking about this. Aesthetics, our idea of beauty is not the issue. And we're not here to preach our idea of beauty, but the gospel, that God is reconciling the world to himself through Jesus Christ. It, it kind of feeds into the next one, which I call mission tools. Some things that we use for mission. This building, for instance. It's lovely to have a building. I'm really glad. I'm glad that it was built according to my sense of aesthetics long before I showed up. That's really nice and it's beautiful, right? But the building is not the mission. Building buildings is not our mission. Building great, giant cathedrals is wonderful, great, fantastic. That's not the mission. The mission is to reconcile men and women, boys and girls, to creator God. Make them disciples of Jesus Christ. And so we can get hung up in all sorts of mission tools, vestments. They're wonderful. They remind us that our church is 2,000 years old, and they bring us back to the centrality and Catholicity of our original uh, goal and original mission, that is, to be followers of Jesus Christ. But we can get all hung up on them. You know, you don't have enough lace on that, or you have too much, or, you know, all that sort of stuff. Some vestments have lace. They're awful. Anyway, uh, they're, they're all sorts of, we can get hung up on musical instruments, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I visit a friend's church. You know, you know, some of my friends and go to their churches. Not a, a friend's denomination. But some of my friends, I'll go to their churches. And I go in and I see, you know, I see drums and guitars and I cringe. It's just not my thing, you know. It's not my sense of, of beauty. But it doesn't matter if that's what they like, you know. 
if it helps them to worship God, fine, whatever. It, the instrument is not the centrality of the mission. Prayer books, oh my, you should see Anglicans and their fights over prayer books. It's scandalous. I saw, I saw this little stand. I, I, sometimes I feel honored, and I, I even ask for forgiveness for these sorts of things. But I saw this stand at this conference one time, these people who were promoting a 28 prayer book, the 1928 prayer book. It's a lovely prayer book. I have one in my office. It's right on my desk. It's a beautiful way to pray. Um, but it's a very archaic language, Elizabethan English, right? Um, Wouldst thou not know us that I must be about my father's business? You know, this sort of stuff, right? Uh, we bewail our manifold sins and wickedness, which is a good thing to do. I'm not, I'm not against it. But I say to this person behind the counter, I say, what is it about the 28 prayer book? Is it the style of language? Or is there a theology in the prayer book that you think is different than the theology of the contemporary prayer book? It's the style of the language. They eventually admitted. There was nothing in there different they could say that they found um, offensive in, the, in a modern prayer book. Just the language shouldn't change. It was an aesthetic about a, a ministry tool, not the, not the goal of the mission itself. More, more, more. <laughs> There's so many I can say. One more. Can I, can I have one more? Yeah, just one more? Maybe two more. I don't know. Social controversies. Oh, my goodness, we get caught up in so many things that are the great Lutheran word, adiaphora. They don't matter. Do you know we have made enemies of Christ people because their hair was too long or too short? Their skirt was too short or too long? They listened to the wrong kind of music? We made them enemies of Christ because they, they like these things? That has nothing to do with anything. The mission isn't about these social uh, proclivities. One more, just one more. I'm sorry, I told you one more, but I want one more. Social action. Um, we do good things in the church, and we should do good things. We should feed the poor. We should clothe the naked. We should, we should house the homeless. We should do these things. We should have hospitals for people who are sick. Buy jingles. We ought to do these things. You say buy jingles? We ought to do these things. We should improve the lives of people, but that is not our mission. It is not our mission to feed the poor to clothe the the naked, to house the homeless, to improve the lives of people. Our mission is to reconcile men and women to God and make them disciples of Jesus Christ. If we can do that through improving their lives, because that's a part of what it means to reconcile them, yes, we do that. But we cannot forget the mission. The mission is to reconcile people, to glorify God by reconciling men and women to their Creator and making them disciples of Christ. And when we do this work, oh, what joy, what joy, what delight. You see people's lives transformed. Uh, there was a big problem with, with, the, with the, um, the sale of gin in 18th century England. They sold so much gin that the bakers had no grain to make bread. People were starving because they were drinking too much. And the Methodist, led by uh, an Anglican priest, John Wesley, kind of, you know, really railed against this and, and said, you know, look, you shouldn't be drinking so much gin. <laughs> and, and, and people were converted to Christ and they, they stopped drinking so much gin. And they said, don't be surprised that Jesus can turn water into wine. The Methodists can turn gin into furniture. You know, they can start, the people will start, you know, doing things they ought to with their money. 
when we do the work that God has given us to do, when we don't become distracted from the mission, we can see amazing things. But when we're distracted from the mission, when we get caught up in controversies, we lose all the fervor, we lose all the strength, we lose the power of the Holy Spirit in our midst. Let's keep on mission, no matter how much work it takes. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.